Welcome to all our listeners today. This is Professor David Block, and the program is entitled Looking Up with David Block. I would suppose that today it would be more beneficial for us to be looking down instead of looking up, because certainly at our home in Northcliffe area, we have no water. So everybody seems to be looking down today desperately trying to find that last wee drop of water. And I suppose that uh, if I were looking up at this stage instead of looking down, trying to find water for our twin boys and for Aaron, I might suffer the fate of Marie Antoinette. And so, indeed, while I'm looking up today, I've also been looking down, trusting that the maintenance crews will get the rivers to flow, the dams to flow, so that tonight when I get home, we indeed have uh, rivers of uh, living water. It often does pay off to be an expert looking up, but also in looking down as well. And today, in fact, that's exactly what we're going to do. But before I introduce my very special studio guest, you can reach us in studio at 0861-555-189. That's 0861-555-189. The Twitter handle is at cliffcentral.com. At Instagram, cliffcentral. Facebook, cliffcentral. And the ID on WeChat is also uh, cliffcentral. You are listening to Professor David Block, and my studio guest today is someone who I have the utmost and greatest respect for. He's a professor, not only a professor at the university in which, at which I work, Wits University, but uh, Michael has worn many, many hats over the years. Professor Michael Sears. Professor Sears has occupied many very interesting positions over the years. I well remember the years 1988 to 1990 when Professor Sears was Dean of the Faculty of Science at Wits University and he was kind enough, most gracious, to actually invite me to serve as Assistant Dean during those two years. Michael left Wits for a little while became manager of the remote sensing unit at Anglo-American Corporation. And as I say, he's worn a number, variety of different hats over the years in terms of mathematics, the Mathematical Sciences Committee, and so on. But today, listeners at cliffcentral.com, we're going to be concentrating on something which is exceedingly interesting, and that is Professor Sears' uh, area of expertise, which is remote sensing. Now, in a w sense, just before I ask Professor Sears to explain exactly what remote sensing is, one must understand that what he's about to say will really link the macrocosm, that which I study, the universe and satellites and so forth, to the microcosm, what happens 
in your home, what happens in your environs, and so forth. So, Michael, it's the greatest of joys to uh, welcome you to Cliff Central Studios today. And I'd like to kick off with a question. Uh, what exactly is remote sensing? David, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and good afternoon to all your listeners at uh, Cliff Central on your program, Looking Up. And in answering your question, I also will link with looking down because <laughs> most people at least think of remote sensing as something you do from way above the Earth, uh, from a, a satellite or perhaps from an aeroplane, and, and that's pretty well correct. Uh, that, that is the, the general uh, form of remote sensing. Mm-hmm. But, but when, I, when I think about your question, it's actually a very good one because there's not a very well-drawn line between what is remote sensing and, and, and what it is not. So, so let's start off with, with your satellites. We have yes. satellites uh, uh, going around the Earth, as, yes. as we all know, and they're doing all sorts of different things. And some of them are supplying feeds for GPS coordinates mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. us so that we don't get lost in, in the traffic in Johannesburg and, and elsewhere. And others are um, providing um, basically conduits for uh, programs like this and Internet connections all around the world. And others are looking down. Others have got different sorts of cameras, different sorts of sensors on them which look down at the earth and then feed back information to us that we can use to try and help us um, manage uh, what we do and, and what we see on, on, this, on this planet that uh, we're all so fortunate to have. So that's the very furthest form of remote sensing. Mm-hmm. But also, a lot of remote sensing activities take place from aeroplanes. Mm-hmm. It may be something like uh, taking pictures of a suburb. Um, aerial photography so that one can make a new map or something of that nature. That's remote sensing. And then still other remote sensing will take place right at the ground itself where we are using a sensor to perhaps measure uh, different properties of a leaf or uh, looking looking down into the ground. We have a, a, some system on the ground surface which is trying to tell us what's going on uh, deep in the in the center of the earth, and you had a program recently on earthquakes and the structure yes. of the earth. So that is also, to my way of thinking, remote sensing. Now sometimes you'll find people will say, "Oh no, no, that's not remote sensing; that's geophysics." Mm-hmm. But uh, these are the sort of discussions and arguments which I don't think are very interesting. Um, it's a matter of what you call something rather than the interesting things that you're able to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's, of course, very interesting about remote sensing is, as you say, in a sense, of course it's remote, but where does one actually, uh, you know, set the limits? I mean, if we think of, for example, the domain, my domain of astronomy, uh, using uh, cameras on board satellites and spacecraft, we're able to look back billions of years into time. But what I really am so fascinated by, Michael, is the fact that in your area of remote sensing, you really are, in a sense, enriching our lives and our futures, as you've discussed already, the GPS, the aeroplanes, the aerial photography. Uh, and, of course, what's so interesting is uh, you at the University of the Witwatersrand and formerly at Anglo-American, 
we're really to be we're really at the cutting edge of all of this. How would you say that South Africa ranks in general in remote sensing compared to say Harvard or Princeton? Well, I guess if you take uh, universities like that, you're talking about the academic Absolutely. aspects of yes. remote sensing. Yes. And it is an academic subject. And again, it, it fits into all sorts of different categories because some of it is very mathematical. And uh, I'm in computer science. You're in applied maths. We're yes. both, I think, remote sensors. Yes. Um, it's in geography. It's in uh, biology. There are just a huge variety of departments where people work with it. And in a sense, it's more uh, a tool for many people than something that they study. But I think, let me answer your question slightly differently. I think South Africa has got some um, world experts in remote sensing. We've got the Satellite Application Center, which has some mm -hmm. very, very uh, strong research activities as well as um, being a very important um, conduit, again, for this data that's coming from all this information that's coming from space to us. Mm. Um, and when I was at Anglo-American, we actually built the first um, commercial hyperspectral sensor. Well, it was actually built in Australia, but we managed it and we wrote all the software, which enabled us to actually get information from all the data. So I think that South Africa, and I, I just mentioned that because I was involved in it, but mm. many, many other people um, around South Africa who very much involved in this. And, of course, you've, you've mentioned the, um, the astronomy aspects. And yes. We've got the, we've got the huge um, new radio. Uh, the SKA. The SKA, mm -hmm. the Square Kilometer Array, which, mm -hmm. which I think puts us uh, in a leading position in, in that area. Michael, do you believe that in South Africa we have got the computer facilities and capabilities to store the sort of data that one needs to store to actually be at the cutting edge? Because we were intervie interviewing uh, Bruce Elmergreen in one of my earlier broadcasts uh, who was at IBM in New York, and he was just speaking about the extreme challenges of just capturing all the data from these SKA satellite, from these SKA dishes just the data to be accumulated in one minute. He was talking about gigaflops and teraflops and more and more. Do you believe that in South Africa we have the computer infrastructure or is this something still to be developed to handle the vast amounts of data to enable you to see the sort of images you are talking about? Yes, again, a very good question, David. I think that in a way you... you put your finger on it there at the end, it's not really an issue of storing the data. Mm. Uh, it's, a it's a lot of data, but big data is now a, a big topic and a big issue. We've got the Center for High Performance Computing in Cape Town with, with leading fast mm -hmm. computing machinery and, and huge storage capabilities and so on. So I don't think that the issue is with the computer's uh, themselves when it comes to storage. I think the issue is in getting the information out of the data. And in, yes. in, my, in my own area of hyperspectral imaging, which is not the same sort of order of data that you're talking about, but you could still get gigabytes of, of data in, in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, how do you then take this, this huge amount of data and get something helpful, mm -hmm. useful, meaningful mm -hmm. out of mm -hmm. it? 
And that, I think, is the big is the big challenge. And mm-hmm. that's that's where the humans come in. Mm-hmm. The computers can do it fast. They can store masses of stuff. But the humans have got to decide how it is that we're going to get information out of that data. You know, Michael, it was very interesting. This morning um, I was participating in an interview, and they were saying to me, David, the field that you are so passionate about, astronomy, is so esoteric in the sense that you're dealing with galaxies billions of light years away. It's nothing to do with homegrown territory. And so I gave them my answers and my thoughts in terms of the search for our roots, not only as human beings, but in terms of the cosmos and cosmology. But of course, I just like to think, for example, of someone listening to this feed, maybe in Kenya, and they, for example, are involved in growing crops. So here we have someone on Gareth Cliff uh, listening to the stream this afternoon on Looking Up. And uh, they, for example, growing their crops, and they want to know, are you able as a remote sensor to help them, uh, an expert in remote sensing, to help them monitor, for example, the growth uh, of their crops? Yes, uh, the, the answer is definitely yes. Um, the, um, the thing we have to think about is, is what sort of scale are we looking at? What sort of level are we looking at when we do this? Uh, in Europe, for example, every year they do detailed assessments of what the different um, main food crops are going to produce during the season based mm-hmm. on uh, the state of the plants at a certain time. And this is all done with satellite data. And they can actually tell, even from satellite images, what the type of the plant is and what sort of health it has. Plants have very particular characteristics, spectral characteristics, and one can tell from those spectral characteristics um, to some extent what they are, but but certainly um, what sort of health they're having. Mm. So if one's talking at a broad scale like that, you can work from a distance scale. Mm -hmm. If you're talking from the scale of somebody who's got their own little field and they're growing crops, Well, one can help in the sense that I mentioned before. You can have spectral devices or devices of different types which would enable them to um, make some statements about, let's say, if there's something going wrong with with the crop. But it's probably not the most efficient way of doing it. If I had a problem with a crop in a situation like that, I I would call a... Uh, a botanist, the, the right sort of uh, botanical specialist, and the botanist would come along and give me some some information, mm. and that would probably involve chemical tests and things of that of that nature. Um, I could I could give you some other types of applications of remote sensing, which which might be um, of interest to your listeners. Um, perhaps some that are not quite as familiar to us as others. For example, there's a huge underground coal fire uh, with, a, with a front ranging for uh, tens to hundreds of kilometers mm. in China. Mm. Uh, one can see this from remote mm. sensing devices mm-hmm. which can measure the heat, the thermal energy mm. being, being generated by this. Mm. It's almost impossible to see it in any other way. If you flew over it with a plane, you might see some smoke here or there. 
but you wouldn't be able to see that sort of that sort of scale. Mm. Some of this information can help us to control something like that mm. because uh, you can imagine the amount of pollution that's being mm. caused by by something like that out of control in a stage of of our planet's career where we're trying to control greenhouse gases and trying to uh, control climate change, which we can also measure uh, from satellites, which measure different types of gases in the in the atmosphere. So there are lots of different applications, quite quite far away from perhaps some of the ones that one might think of at first sight. You are listening to Professor Michael Sears. This is Professor David Block, and the program is entitled "Looking Up with David Block." We have a caller on the line. A uh, heartiest welcome to Nick Devet. Hello, Professor. Hi, Nick. Are you well? Uh, I'm good, thanks, you. Fine, thank you. Let us have your um, question. Like to... Fire it. I... It's not a question. I just like to say I love the show every day. Well, that's just great news, and uh, I trust that we are meeting your needs in terms of varied topics of interest. But if there's any specific topic. Are. Nick, that you'd like me to address, just reach me on my Facebook page, sorry, on my web page, which is www.davidblock.co.za. Just hit the contact button or just send a message to me via Twitter. My handle is at Starry Galaxy Man. But thank you so much for that encouragement. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And so, Michael, we've been talking about fires in China. That's quite extraordinary because the current fire raging there is thousands of kilometers in extent, is it not? Yes, that's that's correct. It's it's really is out of control at at this point, and uh, people don't under, don't realize that coal can burn underground, and it's it's uh, it's not that somebody set the fire; it's spontaneous, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's it's a it's a huge problem. Unfortunately, the remote sensing isn't helping us fix the problem, but at least it's showing us where the problem is and perhaps giving us some ideas of where uh, we might be able to address it in the future. Mm-hmm. Of course, one of the areas, Michael, which has always fascinated me, I remember when you left the university to go to Anglo-American and head up the remote sensing unit, was this of mineral exploration because of course in days gone by thinking about a drive a little while ago my family and I undertook to Pilgrim's Rest you know if you wanted to find gold the only way was you went and you started panning for gold and you'd either find gold or you wouldn't find gold and you'd physically have to explore on your feet it was a very hands-on experience and of course all this is really uh, totally changed. Uh, I remember when the Oppenheimers used to have to visit mines. Again, it was absolutely hands-on. Could you tell us, could you lead us gently down the road? Uh, could you lead our listeners gently down the road, please, of, you know, exploring for minerals using satellites and remote sins? Uh Yes, well, that's a very interesting question. And, of course, this is what I was involved with when I worked for Anglo-American. And... Um, there are diff- again, there are different scales that you can look at this. Um, just actually having images of the Earth with some 
different information from different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum mm-hmm. enables you to make some um, distinctions about the different types of rocks, the different classifications of rocks. Mm-hmm. But I mentioned earlier the hyperspectral sensor. Could you elaborate on that for our listeners? I'll, yeah, I'll do that with pleasure. Mm-hmm. Essentially what a hyperspectral image is, is it's a photograph which you take at a lot of different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. So when you take your ordinary picture with your cell phone, you're taking basically three wavelengths, one for red, one for green, and one for blue. Mm-hmm. And these three separate pictures are mixed up mm-hmm. and uh, turn into one single color image. Mm-hmm. But they really are three different images. Mm-hmm. Now, if you just extrapolate that a bit, what is to stop us taking a picture, not in the visible region of the spectrum, but perhaps in the um, what we call the near-infrared, mm-hmm. which is a little bit um, further down the spectrum than we can see. Mm-hmm. So and the eyes are not sensitive, therefore, to that. Our eyes are not sensitive to that wavelength, but we can build cameras that are mm-hmm. sensitive mm-hmm. to that wavelength. Mm-hmm. So let's say we've now got a, a, a red a picture, a green picture, a blue picture, and then an infrared picture. Mm-hmm. And we can move further from that and go into the shortwave infrared and even the thermal infrared, all the time taking pictures. And if we take pictures just at very small separations in terms of their uh, spectral regions, we end up with a stack. You could think of it like your photographs, well, nowadays, of course, people don't have photographs that mm-hmm. they stack, mm-hmm. but try and visualize a whole stack of photographs, one on top of the other, yes. and each photograph is at a different, taken at a different light right. wavelength. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that different minerals reflect differently, and, and plants reflect differently. Everything reflects differently in different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. So if you have a stack of information like that, and you look at one point on the ground, you can see what its spectrum looks like, the curve of the different reflections in the different wavelengths. Excellent, yes. And that spectrum actually can tell you a lot about what that material on the ground actually is. Mm-hmm. And it's, conf- it's going from that stack of images to the information about what you see on the ground that's the interesting stuff mm-hmm. with this type of technology. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what these, these sensors did. Uh, the Anglo sensor was able to uh, see, if that's what the word you'd like to use, uh, looking down, it could see kimberlites, which is the mineral which hosts diamonds. Mm-hmm. Actually, those that were exposed on the surface of the earth, it could discover those. Mm-hmm. It could also find what are called alterations, which is where the earth the rocks of the earth have been changed due to uh, pressure and and different um, uh, geological events in the past. Mm-hmm. It can't point down and say, oh, look, there's gold. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's, that's asking mm-hmm. too much. Mm-hmm. But it can say, oh, look, there are positions which could possibly be interesting to investigate. Mm. And this, is, this replaces... Or, or I should not say replaces this assists geologists going out into the field and they can then look at the more interesting regions right away instead of having to cover the whole region on foot. So that's the sort of application where you can use these types of systems uh, for minerals. And uh, just adding to that very quickly, of course, sometimes what you want to do is monitor pollution. 
Mm-hmm. You want to see if mm-hmm. from around the mine there mm-hmm. actually is a spill-off of mm-hmm. some potentially harmful material, which, mm-hmm. again, you may not be able to see with the naked eye mm-hmm. in, the, in the water courses. Yes. But you can see it by looking again at the spectrum from your big stack of yes. photographs at different wavelengths. Mm. I think there's a wonderful marriage, Michael, between your field and mine in terms of you are talking about kimberlites and alterations and so forth, and here I am studying galaxies, but it all forms under this huge hat of hyperspectral analysis, and I think it's just awesome that you can actually study the universe billions of light years away or look at kimberlites and uh, nevertheless travel and traverse down the same road. A little while ago, in fact, in June of last year, Michael, I was uh, invited to speak in China. And uh, in Beijing, I could hardly see for a few hundred meters down the road because of the extreme pollution. And that leads me on to the following question. Given all the incredible amount of pollution going up there, together with hosts of other different factors, is this very contentious issue of global warming which uh, we see happening on uh, really global and um, very vast and sometimes alarming scales. Could you perhaps gently again, in your own inimitable way, lead us down that road of how remote sensing can be used to study the enigmatic global warming phenomenon? Yes, in in a way... um it's only remote sensing that enables you to do that. I'm, I'm sure there'll be listeners who will be upset with me saying that. Um, but really, once you're looking at things at the planetary scale, at the global scale, how can you make statements about what's happening in Johannesburg or what's happening in, in London or what's happening in, even in Beijing? Mm-hmm. You have to be talking about what's happening to the atmosphere of the whole planet. Yes. And, and to do sampling for that is really very hard. So uh, many, um, there are many satellites whose, with uh, uh, sensors on them where the main reason for their existence is to try and measure as accurately as possible the different trace gases in the atmosphere. So they're looking down as well because they're outside our atmosphere. They're looking down, but they're not Mm. looking down to the surface of our planet. Mm -mm. They're looking down through the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And by taking this multiple stack of pictures and doing a lot of analysis and processing afterwards, they are able to to, um, map over time uh, how the gas... Uh, content of the atmosphere is, is changing, mm-hmm. and this is a this happens at a huge uh, scale. When when we're looking at our glu- at our Google Maps, which we may chat about later, mm. we want to see as much detail as possible, mm. as smaller mm. detail mm. as possible. Mm. When you're looking at the atmosphere, you want to look at huge chunks of it, mm. so that you can find the smallest traces of of gas in it, mm. and that's what these sensors are able to do. You are listening to. Professor Michael Sears, who is an expert on remote sensing, and he is our studio in the our guest in the studios here in Ravonia today. You're listening to Professor David Block on Looking Up with David Block, 
You are most welcome to reach us on 0861-555-189. The Twitter handle is at cliffcentral.com, Instagram, cliffcentral, Facebook, cliffcentral, and cliffcentral is, again, the WeChat ID. We're going to take a little musical break now, and we're going to listen to the enigmatic Enya doing one of her magical, masterful orchestral works. to set your heart up. 
are listening to Professor David Block. Warmest welcome to the show on cliffcentral.com. My special guest in the studio in Ravonia this afternoon is Professor Michael Sears. Now, if I were to speak to the global listenership and introduce you to some titles of books like Deadly Harvest, Death of the Mantis, the second death of good luck, Tinabu, and so forth. You might be wondering, well, what has this got to do with the subject of remote sensing? And the answer is nothing. But there's a very interesting link here in that my studio guest is not only a professor of applied mathematics and computational and applied mathematics, and an expert in remote sensing, but Professor Michael Sears has done something which I regard as absolutely fascinating, and that he is um, an author of uh, these books, such as Deadly Harvest and Death of the Mantis, uh, published by HarperCollins in New York, and so forth. And I just find this all totally fascinating, Michael, that here you are, um, you know, you're wearing so many different hats at the university anyway, and now you're wearing all these different hats again in terms of all these books. Now, before we get into the subject of all these uh, these uh, books on fiction, um, you know, there might be vast myriads of numbers of people out there who are listening to us today and who are saying to themselves, well, look, I really would, my dream is to become a writer, but uh, what do I actually do? to become a writer, given the immense amount of competition. How did you actually personally enter this highly competitive field? Well, thanks thanks for the question, David. And uh, uh, yes, your, your listeners may be surprised that, that I've, I'm a co-writer, actually. I write the books with somebody else. We write together mm-hmm. under the name Michael Stanley. So... Mm-hmm. If they look for books, mysteries with the name Michael Sears, they'll actually find some. But mm-hmm. there's another Michael Sears who writes mysteries. So mm-hmm. if they want to, uh, if they would like to, to see mine, it's under the name of Michael Stanley. And I write the books with Stanley Trollope. Mm-hmm. So a very good question is, well, how did I come to start yes, writing absolutely. mysteries, fiction, um, when, and, and with somebody else at, at that? When my background is in the mathematical sciences mm. and my research interests, we've been, we've been chatting about it mm. early in the program. Uh, it really all goes back a, a very long way. Stan, Stanley Trollope and I are great friends. We've been friends for a very long time. And on one occasion, we were uh, exploring an area in uh, Botswana. Mm-hmm. He's a pilot and we'd flown into an area and we were in the Savuti Game Reserve. 
and we saw a pack of hyenas um, pull down and consume a wildebeest, mm. uh, which was a very, ex- very exciting, maybe a bit gruesome, but a very exciting thing to see. But the amazing thing about it was that at the end of this attack by the hyenas, there was nothing of the wildebeest left except the horns. Mm. And I suppose after a few glasses of wine that evening as we were uh, you know, reliving this, this incredible experience in the African bush, um, perhaps after a few more glasses of wine, we said, well, that would be a wonderful way of getting rid of a body if you were a murderer <laughs> because there'd be nothing left for the police to trace. There would be no case because there'd be no evidence for them to follow. Yes. And we thought this was a great idea, and we went on talking about it for 20 years before we actually did anything about it. Yes. Uh, and then one day, as I was getting close to the end of my time at Anglo-American, or retiring from Anglo-American, I just sat down one afternoon, and I visualized the scene of an ecologist and a game ranger spotting some vultures in the distance, and it turns out to be indeed that a hyena has... Uh, is on a on a human um, uh, body, mm. Mm. and of course the mystery is not really uh, about the hyenas or this this interesting premise that we had, or we thought it was interesting, but really about why a murderer would want to go to all that trouble to make it so impossible to discover uh, who this person actually mm. was. Now, I must say, going back to your earlier comment, that there is a link between remote sensing and, and the novels because hmm. um, the, one of the uh, um, people who discovers the body is actually an ecologist who uses remote sensing extensively in his work. And he actually helps the police a little bit with, uh, with uh, solving the, the case because mm-hmm. he is able to get some satellite information which is of interest to them. And as we're writing these novels, and we're now, our fifth is about to be published in, in the States, and our sixth I'm busy working on at the moment with Stanley. Do we have um, titles yet for those? Or they... uh, the new one will be called Death in the Family. Death in the, the Family, the, yes. the one that's going to come mm-hmm. out in the, in the U.S. Uh, next year. Um but as we're working on those, there are a lot of things about this technology that we've talked about that are very important to the police. And for example, with satellite tracking technologies, um, actually not usually with satellites, but when you wander around with your cell phone, the police can actually trace where you've been on the basis of which towers the cell phone's connected to. I have to tell you, this makes it pretty hard for criminals because as they're wandering around, the police can find out afterwards where they went. <laughs> and it makes it pretty hard for mystery writers as well because every time you come up with a really clever, uh, sneaky little twist in your plot, you realize, ah, no, the police would be able to use some modern remote sensing type technology to get around that. So so there is a bit of this, uh, this remote sensing yes. that even comes into, into yes. mysteries. I'm sorry I didn't answer your question. I talked oh, about Oh, I find how this absolutely fascinating. I think it's just so awesome to be wearing these different hats, and here suddenly comes Death in the Family, Deadly Harvest, and all these incredible books containing such a degree of fiction and mystery and awe and wonder. 
And so my question to you, Michael, uh, is given the vast numbers of listeners we have and those who are downloading podcasts, uh, how does one actually, how did someone like yourself, I mean, now you are very well known in this area, but I mean, to start with, it's a very, very competitive field. Do you simply, does one blindly send a manuscript to a publisher? Do you need contacts? What must one do for one of our listeners to actually become or realize their dream, as it were, as a writer? Yes, that's the question I didn't answer, so yes. I'm glad you're giving me a chance. <laughs> a second a second bite of <laughs> this cherry. Um, David, things have changed dramatically over the years, and I'm not talking about over um, the the 20 years or so since we started thinking about our book, I'm talking about even the, the last five years. The Our first book was called A Carrion Death, mm-hmm. and um, we sold originally perhaps 5% of the copies of the book that we sold were as e-books. Uh, mm. Of our last, our latest mm. book, Deadly Harvest, more than half of the sales have been e-books. Interesting. So there's a huge change in the way people are reading books. And there is a connection between this and, and, and your question. Mm-hmm. We were enormously lucky. We, we wrote a book um, which uh, appealed to a number of agents in New York. Uh, one of them took it on immediately, uh, took it to HarperCollins and several other publishers. They were Two of them were interested. Two of them made bids on the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's outstanding. This, this, is, this is like winning a lottery. Mm. It's just so mm. unusual, and we, mm. were, we were so uh, amazed by, by this. Um, but we were very, very lucky. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As you say, you can, in, let's say in South Africa at least, you can write a book and send it blindly to a publisher. Mm, mm. You can also, there are also people who, repres- who will represent your books, mm-hmm. publishers. Mm-hmm. And people do that a lot. I would advise people, if they're writing a book or they've written a book, to get some advice from mm-hmm. other people. Um, people often send me bits of manuscripts, and I'm happy to try and help because we were so lucky that I'm only too delighted to try and feed back you know, now I'm an instant expert because I've written a few <laughs> books. But uh, but you can get a feel, a bit of a feel for what's right and wrong with a manuscript. Uh, but there are also courses, online courses, mm-hmm. university courses that mm-hmm. you can go to in creative writing. It's worth doing that. So this is just just because we managed to, you know, reach our hand into the lottery hat and pull out the winning ticket. Mm. People shouldn't think that that's a likely way. Mm. The likely way is to build yourself up as a writer Mm. but now having said that Mm. you don't need a traditional publisher these days Mm. you Mm. can take advantage of that e-book that electronic book market automatically directly yourself yes and the way you can do that is you can write a book and you can yourself Mm -hmm. put it up on amazon which Mm -hmm. i'm sure your listeners Mm -hmm. know is a huge um electronic marketing system Mm -hmm. Uh, you can put it up there and you can set the price Amazon will take a certain percentage of it but most of the money of the of the sales of your book 
will come to you. So the world is your oyster. The world is your oyster. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the case with our books. We do not get most of the money from the books. Most of the money from our books goes into the into the, uh, pub, the bookstores and the, the publishers, and they, of course, are involved in marketing and things like that. I'm not saying it all goes in profit, but we get actually very Look. low royalties mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. on our books, less mm-hmm. than 10% mm-hmm. on paperbacks. Mm-hmm. You can be getting three-quarters of the money for a book on Amazon. Mm. So there must be a catch. Mm. What's the catch? Why mm. are we not doing this? Yes. It's so easy. Yes. The catch is... How do you get people to know about your books? Mm-hmm. And that is the big mm-hmm. commitment. Mm-hmm. Writing a good book is hard work, tremendous commitment, and you'll be just thrilled when it's finished. And you yourself are a writer of excellent mm-hmm. books, which I'm sure your, your listeners also know, and you will mm. have shared the wonderful feeling of accomplishment mm. when the book is finally mm. finished. Absolutely. But getting sales out, the marketing aspect, mm, that that's is a key. huge, that's mm, a huge mm. uh, commitment. So if you've written your novel, uh, yes, you can, you can get it published directly on Amazon, but then realize that you can't sit back and wait for people to buy it. There are 750,000 other books on Amazon mm, that mm, people can buy. Mm. You've got to get out there and market. And there are lots of online resources that you can use to help to help you do that. Mm. So there are two ways. Go for the traditional publisher. They will do a lot for your book, but you'll still have to do a lot yourself. Or uh, you can put it up directly on Amazon, and then you'll have to do everything for the book mm. yourself. Mm. And I wish everybody good luck, and I'm happy, as I say, to help people if, if they'd like to contact me. You're listening to Professor David Block interviewing Professor Michael Sears, and I would like to give you the titles of some of his books, uh, co-authored with by Stanley Trollope. Uh, you're on Amazon or anywhere else. You can Google the book Deadly Harvest, published by HarperCollins, New York, uh, last year, 2013. Death of the Mantis, Death of the Mantis, published by HarperCollins in New York, as well as in London, by Headline in 2011, uh, The Second Death of Good Luck Tinubu by HarperCollins, 2009. And, of course, this new book, which is um, mentioned, Death in the Family, if I recall correctly. Now, Michael, just to go back to that uh, scene of the hyenas, and the wildebeest, I think this is quite extraordinary that one should come up, you know, with this great uh, degree of mystery. You know, suddenly the wildebeest, uh, the hyenas and the wildebeest is essentially devoured and gone. Um, may I ask you this question? Because I know you as a professor, of course, of applied mathematics. I know you as a professor in computer science. I know you also as an extremely creative writer. When you see a scene like that, the hyenas and the wildebeest, do you actually look at the world mathematically, analytically, or do you see it more in a sense of mystery and art and intrigue? Because often mathematicians don't always wear the other set of spectacles. Was it not Marcel Proust who said, the real voyage of discovery 
consists not in have seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And of course, that's where you and Stanley Trollope really come to the fore, is that you're not seeking new landscapes, but you are having a remarkable set of new eyes. Do you, how do you actually perceive a scene like that, and the world in general, for example, a rushing waterfall? Oh, what a fascinating question. Uh, yes, I, th- I think that, that, that you're right. Um, you don't... You don't see these things analytically. The the uh, I, I gave the example of the ecologist in 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 the book. Um, he ended up playing quite a quite a small role in the book because our our hero turns out to be the policeman at the Botswana uh, CID, whose nickname is Kubu, mm-hmm. which means hippo in in Setswana. Mm. And I think he also sees things very differently. But I think to be a writer, you need to. You need to look at things differently. You need to listen to people. You need to uh, watch scenes and and have an emotional impact that comes from them. Uh, the wildebeest and the hyenas was an emotional experience. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an analytic experience mm-hmm. at all. Uh, the analysis, as I said, came afterwards and only probably with the help of uh, a small amount of alcohol. So, mm-hmm. you know, there certainly wasn't that. Certainly wasn't the feeling at the time. And I think that, generally speaking, when I look at something, you mentioned a waterfall, I don't think, ah, oh, I could describe that by picking out that little bit of yellow on the side as the water's going over that mossy rock, mm. or mm. Uh, I could talk, talk about the mist coming off it. it. It's an impact that it has on me as a person. Mm. And those other things are when your subconscious sort of shoves information across to your or, or something, I don't know what it, to call it information, shoves it across to your conscious mind, and then you start working with the words, and you start using such skills as you have mm-hmm. with words in order to try and communicate this emotional experience. Mm-hmm. But it's a difficult thing to do, and only the most brilliant writers are really successful at it. Of course, what's really interesting is that, you know, given the... Um you know, given the handful of real jewels in terms of writing who are just brilliant in, you know, uh, transmuting their emotions to their vast number of readers, you are totally unique in this aspect is that, you, you know, one can ask you about, you know, any area of topology and, um, you know, you're very most comfortable with it. And yet many topologists would not really be emotionally inclined in terms of invoking the subconscious and I think that um, this is really what sets Professor Michael Sears absolutely unique, is that he's got this extremely deep understanding about nature and about how our planet, uh, the pale blue dot, actually functions. But he's also got this sense of mystery, of awe, and of wonder. I would like to tell our listeners that uh, Michael uh, actually uh, taught me applied mathematics many years ago, and he instilled in me one word, passion. You know, I've always said on radio and on television, passion is never taught, it is caught. And Michael, it is very interesting that you have entered this world of the writing of books and of mysteries and so on. Could you tell us a little bit more about your inspector group? Uh, David, you're much too kind about about me, but I'd certainly, of course, uh, love to tell you about Inspector Kubu. We have a very um, soft <laughs> spot for him. 
Uh, he's a very large man in the Botswana CID. He loves his food and uh, uh, doesn't doesn't turn down a glass of wine on occasion. Um, he he. People ask us where did he come from? Yes. And is he based on something? Yes. And in fact, he's not based on anybody, as far as we know, except to the extent that all. Uh, things are based on other things, so you know there are there will be connections with other books and other people. Um, but he actually uh, went to investigate this crime. The the uh, ecologist let him know that there was a murder, and of course the police had to be involved. Mm-hmm. So he climbed into his Land Rover, which was a bit of a clamber because he's 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 a very he's large, large man, as I yes. said, and and uh, he would say, well built. But mm-hmm. we would say overweight. Mm-hmm. And he took his sandwiches with him and his cold drinks and he put music, put a, a cassette of music in his, in his cassette player. And he took off into the desert and he thought about how he'd become a policeman mm-hmm. and the, the, the way in which he'd learned from a Bushman school friend mm-hmm. about seeing things more deeply, exactly mm-hmm. the sort of things that you've been talking mm-hmm. about. And I think it's a skill or, or a, or a something of a calling for a detective. Mm, and by the time he reached the murder scene, he'd completely taken over the book. We, we had intended that the ecologist was going to be the main character in the story, but Kubu shoved him aside and took over, and, um, and Kubu became the, the hero of the book, mm. eventually solved the, the crime. Uh, his family plays a role in, in, our, in our books, and uh, we reflect. We reflect Botswana, and we try and reflect issues that are important in Southern Africa. Mm-hmm. And because our books are are set not in South Africa but in Botswana, we are able perhaps sometimes to bring in things that are a little off the beaten track from a mm. South African perspective. Mm. Like Death of the Mantis is around the plight of the Bushman people of the mm. Kalahari, mm. and uh, and we have the the background of Zimbabwe, blood diamonds, mm-hmm. uh, the power of the witch doctors. These are the things that make the backstories against which we hope we set an entertaining and enjoyable mystery. Michael, thank you so much uh, for joining me in studio today. You've been listening to Professor Michael Sears, who's one of certainly the most esteemed professors in our country uh, and, in fact, abroad. And I say that absolutely from the heart. He's also the author, together with Stanley Trollope, of Deadly Harvest, Death of the Mantis, and uh, several other books. And we look forward, greatly forward, to welcoming both him and Stanley Trollope in this very studio in a few months' time. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, we play out with Enya.